The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, for many months we've worked our way through Psalm 119 by way of giving it special attention and study and prayer meeting and public reading on Sunday mornings, and we've, we've walked with the psalmist as he's uh, declared his great affection and satisfaction and longing for your word, as he's expressed struggle and prayed and taught us to pray and provoked us to think better about things of uh, not only of this world, but beyond uh, the temporal and the fleeting. And so we thank you for the rich range of, of testimony that you've provided through your scriptures. We thank you for the providential circumstances that um, not only provoked um, a mastery of uh, grammatical poetry that was uh, strung together, but the centering of, of the, the text on your word and even the, the struggles and the psalmist experience. And I think about that in view of our engagement with James and the, 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 the fact that you don't um, arbitrarily um, provide for us various trials, but that you provide for us that which is best, and various trials produce perseverance, and perseverance will have its perfect work, and it will bring us to a place of perfection, maturity, and completion. And the psalmist certainly, we walked with him as he, as he demonstrated that, as he didn't lose appetite, didn't lose uh, passion and drive for your word and, and for its uh, magnificent impact. And so we thank you for that, and even this closing section that we have read this morning, and He's continuing to petition, Lord, would you hear me? Would you help me long for your salvation and desiring to be a worshiper and then expressing even just that humble confidence as a, as a sheep straying, Lord, would you bring me back? But, but I have not forgotten your word. So we thank you for that uh, testimony that he's provided for us. We, we thank you for the testimony we've also affirmed through song and truths that we are able to um, take to mind and to heart and other people with another skill set, putting it to song, and, and then those within the body exercising their gifts and leading us in song so that we can uh, take truths and remember them and, and declare them back to you, affirm them to one another. Uh, they not only, they don't prime us for um, praying and, and preaching and teaching, but they do um, kind of stir up a, an affection and right thinking, and so we thank you for that as well and, and ask that we would uh, hold fast to the words that we sing, that it wouldn't just be uh, a repetition of words that we are uttering, but that they would be sincere testimony birthed out of hearts that love you. And we are mindful of the voices that were absent today. I think about even as we began our prayer time, it's common, uh, not by necessarily any kind of prescribed order, but almost immediately we hear the voice of Pastor Frank, and he usually is affirming the nation that we are praying for and, and petitioning on their behalf and praying for this church body and praying for your work in and among us. And um, this week, he's uh, not present. He's, he's taking a, a time of reprieve, and we, we thank you that you give rest and reprieve, and thank you that that's even by design. You've, you've designed us to rest and to even take breaks at uh, given times and seasons. We thank you've afforded him and Beverly that opportunity, and ask that you'd give them grace in this season or this time. Thankfully, it's not a season, but just a brief time away. And think of the others that um, their voices are absent. I think about Andre consistently also um, joining us in corporate prayer and, and petitioning on behalf of this body. He, he always loves when visitors come and just 
almost prays them into to membership and, and wants, wants this church to grow and loves this church. And so we thank you for the diversity of this body and we thank you for the service that it has for one another. And we do pray for those who, again, aren't able to be here, providential circumstances of sickness, um, work, um, vacation, and otherwise you, you, you craft all these things, you use all these things, but we're grateful and we're grateful now to be here and to center ourselves on the scriptures. Uh, we think about the, the magnificent testimony that you provided through James, James who didn't, didn't see that it was necessary or even probably best to, to, to go about parading that he was the, the brother of our Lord, but rather identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and then demonstrates what does that look like. He was a man of, of prayer and resolve and action and that's what he's expecting of us. And so help us to hear what he's provided through your spirit for your church and to heed ourselves accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, um, we're transitioning from a long time of introduction and to actually jumping into the text. And um, I don't I don't want to qualify, but it seems to be in my, my DNA to, to qualify it and then qualify my qualifications. But we're jumping into our, our finally engaging James. So for four weeks, we were walking through an introduction of James, and that might sound peculiar, and it probably was in some ways, but I wanted to introduce you to the person of James. I wanted you to understand that this, this magnificent man that was seemingly a background character, was not a background figure. He wasn't an extra, as it were. He was a magnificent leader within Christ's church, and he was just very content not to be made much of. And it's not that others needed to be made much of. It was just that by God's design and the advancement and the progress of the church, it was more appropriate to draw attention to Peter and Paul. But all the while, James is there. So we took time and attention to give to that. And then we looked at verse 1. We looked at verse 1 uh, about three, four weeks ago. And so it seems strange to now be in 2 to 4, but we looked at verse 1 because we wanted to see who the author is and how did he describe himself, not just how do we describe him, who his audience or his readers were, namely the dispersed Jewish believers and the fact that the historic Christian church at this point in time in redemptive history was effectively a Jewish church because of the progress of redemption. They, they hadn't even got to Acts 15 yet where they're wrestling with Gentile inclusion. And then we looked at major themes so as to develop a, um, a framing of the book and also um, an outline, as it were, to give us some direction. And, and so we're finally here to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And as we begin this engagement, I would encourage you to, um, to think about maybe a common experience you have, not necessarily personal experience, but something you've seen observed. You've, you've seen either a, a documentary, a movie, or even... If you're a, a fan of literature, the, this is a, a common form of, uh, of narration in literature where a narrator will be speaking over the, the context. It kinda, the, they'll frame what's happening, and then you'll engage the story. And the narrator kind of give, gives us direction and tells us big picture. And so with that in view, imagine a narrator speaking over images of the larger events of your life. So somebody's narrating your story. Maybe some of them are more exciting than others. I don't think mine would be a particularly bestseller, but... Nevertheless, so we have a narration of the larger events of your life, and in this moment, the image was focused on, the, on a time of trial that you've encountered. And that's a, it's an inevitable. So for the, the little ones, the young ones, 
just know that trials will come. It's not, oh, that person has trials. It's an inevitable part of our experience for a variety of reasons. We live in a fallen world and the Lord's growing us. So trials are going to happen. And so it zooms in on this particular moment of trial you've encountered, maybe a problem at work or home, trouble with your vehicle, perhaps even a wreck caused by someone else or an animal. I was just telling Dallas, um, I believe it was last night, night before, he's going for a drive and it's like, it's getting dusk. The deer are running. So just be mindful. Those, those jokers, they'll run in front of you. They'll run into you. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll watch you go by and wave and then jump out in front of you. You just got to be mindful. So there's unforeseen circumstances like that, unforeseen financial struggles, relational challenges, birth from another's maybe misunderstanding or even their selfishness. Um, it's a whole range of trials that can happen. And so this particular trial is zoomed in on, and as the image pans out to a larger frame, the narrator begins to speak. And he says, it was evidently not God's will that they should be kept out of trial, but that they should turn it to good account. And this is how Joseph Mayer spoke of the original recipients of James's letter as they received the opening command in these verse verses. But it's quite, it quite naturally fits for us too, does it not? So desperately, at least many of us, we're, we're searching for, uh, pursuing what is the will of God for our life, or what's God's will or, or desire for our lives. And some of us planners arguably want to know it more than others. We, we got to know what does tomorrow have? And not just tomorrow, what is next year and then next month? And then just continue to advance. What does God want for me? And how do I direct myself? And we're searching for that so often. And there's a wisdom to planning. Um, and there's a wisdom to taskless calendars and all such things. But sometimes we don't know. We, we do know is that God has made his will so very plain in certain areas. And those areas are to walk in joyful obedience, to pursue holiness, vigorously love others, declare the excellencies of Christ, long for and live in view of the Lord's return, and follow the many other clearly prescribed commands provided throughout the scriptures. Commands which, as we will note today, include considering it all joy when encountering various trials and letting perseverance have its work. And yet we still struggle to know, to understand what is only best known when reflecting back to what is past, trusting for what's ahead. But even so, when looking back and knowing what may well be ahead, we wrestle with the prospect of encountering various trials. We, we don't like that prospect. Maybe some of the little ones or young ones are like, what, various trials, they're coming, and some of the of more mature folks are like, yeah, and they don't stop. They continue to come. And sometimes that frustrates us, and sometimes that provokes us to maybe a measure of anxiety or curiosity. Why does the Lord use that, or, or why does the Lord even provide for such things? Especially when uh, we, we wrestle with the, when we're commanded to value those various trials as all joy. Now, we understand various trials, but to command to, to value them as all joy or as a, a full and robust expression of joy, boy, now I'm really struggling. I'm trying to discern the will of God. I'm trying to discern what's best and what he desires in all circumstances. And I know various trials are going to be part of that. And so I accept that. But to consider them all joy, that's a challenge. And maybe, again, you're familiar with these things well enough that you're like, no, it's not a, it's, it's all joy in these things. Well, it is a challenge. And this, again, is why Joseph Mayer's voice gently uh, gently narrates the larger picture as the image zooms out more widely. Again, it was evidently not God's will that they should be kept out of trial, but they should turn it to good account. Now, Mayer was speaking first to the immediate context of James, um, which is where we must start to. James was writing, as we've already mentioned, to Jewish Christians who were dispersed abroad. He speaks to the, 
those who are the 12 tribes have been dispersed abroad. So he gives a historic context there beyond the borders of Israel. He was not limiting his letter to Jewish believers, but being as the, or again, as the early New Testament church was effectively all Jewish at this time. There, You can have a few exceptions here and there, but it, it wasn't that Gentiles were excluded. This is just follow the book of Acts and realize this wasn't chapter one was day one, chapter two was day two, and you get to, you know, Acts is over in a month. This is years of gospel progress. So the Jewish church was his natural audience, and it was a displaced people who knew of trials. So James now takes what they knew, various trials, and calls upon them not simply to make lemonade out of lemons, but to submit these challenges to a proper valuation that will press their difficulties into the service of their enduring sanctification and ultimately God's glory as they are increasingly matured into the likeness of Christ. That is where we are heading today. But just as James had a historic context, framing our appreciation of who he wrote to and to some degree why, so also he had a structural context too. We spoke to that last week. That's why we gave an outline. It wasn't just so that you have an idea of how many lessons and what are we going to cover each week, but rather it gives us a, a structural context, the, the direction in which he wrote and fit things together. And now that we've given a, a broad examination of the book as a whole through our time of introduction in the last few weeks and have wrestled through such matters as structural context, we can now appreciate that James did not necessarily design that verses 2 through 4 should be considered in isolation, but with a view to the book as a whole, and even more precisely with a view to its grammatical distinct section that covers verses 2 through 15. So we're going to focus today on verses 2 through 4, but I want you to constantly have in view that 2 through 4 fits through 2 through 15. And so for, for the drivers out there, I don't know about your skill set or even how you approach driving, but my eyes, it's not because of some nervous twitch, but I'm always checking mirrors. I want to know where I am. I want to know in proximity to, to lanes and other vehicles and where I'm going, what's behind, what's... And so there's this constant moving, and, but yet I'm always focused straight ahead. We're focusing 2 to 4, but keep in mind 2 to 15 because that's where it's framed. That's where it fits in this larger section. So that being said, uh, we're going to do the best we can to calibrate our attention accordingly, and we're going to read 2 through 15 together, a section that we've titled Foundations for Wisdom's Path to Perfection. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. 
So once more, while verses 2 through 4 will be our focus today, they have a larger immediate context. And while not all subdivisions will have as plain or a distinctive a role, so we, we're going to break it up for a couple of reasons. One, there's some natural breaks, and also there's just the fact that it's hard to work on 2 through 15 all in one section. So, uh, But not all subdivisions are going to have their own uh, distinct place within the larger whole. They're going to have a they're going to develop and contribute, but I would put forward that 2 through 4 is unique even within its context and even within the book itself as it serves not only as the opening section of the letter, but really as a foundation, um, excuse me, not only the opening section of this, of this portion of the text, but it really is the letter as a whole. It serves as a foundation. It provides a perspective. How do we think about trials? How do we think about the cultivation and perseverance of faith and ultimately as we've said that the book is directing us to how are we thinking about perfection, maturity, completion in Christ, which is what James, I would argue, is pressing us to. And so he's laying the groundwork for that here in 2 through 4. Now, in coming to these first few verses, we are already engaged by two commands, a pattern that marks the whole of this book, which is over 50 imperatives peppered throughout it. So we talked about Psalm 119. We've given a lot of time and attention to Psalm 119. And if we were to say, what's the the most uh, central distinguishing element. And some of you um, might be like, oh, the grammatical, beautiful structure. And that's, that's good. That's true. But the central primary driving emphasis is clearly the, yeah, the word of God, the scriptures. He, he uses seven synonyms all throughout it in terms of how to, to view and to speak of it. It's just saturating throughout it. And James, in terms of his uh, style and structure, he might say, what's his What's his style? What's his approach to, to writing a letter, at least in this context? And you'd say, boy, imperatives. He just fills the book with expectation for action, which really fits considering that his is the conclusion that faith without works is dead and that uh, faith is an active working faith. And so he really puts that to action for us. And these first two imperatives will frame our work today. The first is considered all joy when you encounter various trials. And the second is, let perseverance have its full effect. Now, with the first command, we have the who, my brothers. That's who he's writing to. That's really important because I can't tell everybody that uh, uh, considered all joy when various trials come because there are some likely mingled within the, the, the public body that either aren't in Christ or haven't affirmed that through baptismal testimony. And so I can just say there, various trials may come. I don't, and I can't expect you to necessarily to consider it all joy because there's not the same form of identification and connection. This is to believers, to Christians. So the who is my brothers, an identification that captures all persons who have submitted in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this context, as we've established, it's Jewish believers who are dispersed beyond the borders of Israel. We have the when. Well, when do you consider it all joy? Well, when you encounter various trials, when you're engaged by various trials. So we have the who, the when, and we have the how. By what means? By way of knowing that the testing of faith brings about perseverance. This is how you go about considering all joy, by way of knowing that the testing of faith brings about perseverance. And with this, we have the second command, which provides us the why. Why, why do we do that? So we know to whom he's addressing and when, the, when it works itself out and how it works itself out, but but why? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. And with the second command, so also we have the why that you have been engaged by 
and persevere, uh, that you have been engaged by and persevered through various trials so that you may be brought to full, complete maturity. That's what it's driving at here. It's what he's driving at throughout the whole of the book. So who Christian believers, specifically Jewish Christian believers in this first century context, but to all of us now, when, when you encounter various trials, how, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, to what end, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not a wasted experience. It's not a loss. So again, two commands, a call to a proper evaluation of trials and a clarifying grace. And this is helpful to have in view when we begin working through this passage that would naturally appear to produce a, I'd say, a measure of tension. And maybe it doesn't for everybody. And and I'm going to attempt to provoke a measure of tension, not out of some kind of morbid satisfaction that if I struggled with this text, you will struggle with this text. But rather because I I see there's an advantage. And so it is from very much a pastoral perspective that I want to introduce a measure of tension so that you'll appreciate its resolution, which I think this is where the text is driving us. I don't want to rush to the resolution for you just to say, ah, yeah, that's of course that's how it works itself out. There's a benefit to process. And so there's a measure of tension before it yields to greater clarity and a desire to see it fulfilled in our lives. So with this, we begin with James' opening command, consider it all joy. And James begins here after a, a very concise introduction. We've already mentioned verse 1 can, it provides a very concise, concise introduction by directing his readers to make a, now to make a willful valuation of their experiences. You're, you're to consider, to reckon, to, to come to a, a purpose decision of evaluation of your circumstances. He's effectively told them how to evaluate the facts and circumstances of their trying experiences. This is how you are to think about them. And it's not just a suggestion. It is, this is, this is how faithfulness and submission to Christ as slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how you are to think about various trials. So arguably, he's imposed a presupposition onto matters that may be simple and straightforward, maybe simple trials, maybe straightforward trials, but they well could be complex and challenging too. And in this, James is writing with a measure of, I would say, unique pastoral authority that supersedes what we possess in and of ourselves and is telling his readers the valuation expected of them, even commanded of them here. Namely, again, that they are to evaluate and conclude that the experience of various trials are cause for great joy. Again, that's not a suggestion so that you'll have a good attitude or to make church and body life easier when people are struggling. He says, this is what the Lord desires, not only desires in terms of some preferential way, but expects and commands. You are to evaluate various trials as cause for great joy. Now, we recognize this command does not stand in isolation, and that helps us. There's a surrounding context that provides it clarity of action and purpose. But even so, at face value here, We have a command regarding how we are to evaluate something, or more broadly stated, how we are to think and possibly even feel about something. It's almost like a a parent commanding their child to eat. Maybe that's not how you'd frame it when you're like, you're going to eat that meal. You may not be thinking, I've commanded my child, but that's effectively what you're doing. Um, So they're commanding their child to eat that which is healthy and good for them. But rather than maybe the parent stating something like, I don't care if you like it, you're going to eat it. It's good for you. Maybe that's, I mean, if you're around Matt, you'll hear him say that even at break time. You'd be like, I'm not sure that I want this. I don't care if you like it, you're going to eat it. It's good for you. (laughs) But it would appear that James has reversed this. He's not saying, I don't care if you don't like it. He does care. And he says, I expect all joy to be produced out of this. He's reversed this and commanded them to like it because it is good for them. It's not a suggestion. You will like it. 
Well, that's hard. That's kind of imposing. He expects that we come to the cognitive determination that the encountering of various trials is all joy. And while James will fill this command out as we have already broadly addressed in introducing the two commands, he will not qualify a range or limitation in what he means by various trials. It's not simply considered all joy when you encounter you know, mundane or common or simple trials. Rather, as we will see in a moment, he leaves this subject wide open. And I'm pressing this matter because I want you to experience that measure of tension with this command because in a relatively brief time, the tension will be resolved. You can, you can read ahead and tension's resolved. You can reflect back on what I've already said and tension's resolved. But I want there to be a measure of tension because uh, the well, exposition and working through a passage together will resolve it. There still will be a tension that will be present in your life. The tension will be alive and well when you're called upon to put this into practice. So I'm aware of a a perspective and likely future tension. The tension of exposition quickly resolved. You just read through the verses and you say, oh, that's why. But when you're suffering and struggling and walking through various trials, there's not that, oh, this is why so much as you might think, yeah, oh, yeah, this is why. But I want you to get past that part so that we, so first we're going to help you get there by, again, experiencing some tension now, developing it, let it work and maturing work in you so that you will think and respond properly. So that when you're called upon to put it into practice, you'll better appreciate the challenge and the weight of the command. Um, and first we do that by appreciating the challenge and the weight of the command now, which again will serve us better later. So you may be tempted again to quickly dismiss the personal and intimate application of this command for your life by way of, again, rushing to a disconnected, cognitively affirmed conclusion that there's a reason that various trials should be regarded as joy. That, that's the danger, that you can be like, oh, man, this happened. And, you know, consider it all joy. I know that's what the Lord expects. I'm happy the Lord's using this. That would be a real tragedy. But if we struggle with it now, and then in the moment you're struggling with it, Lord, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. But I know how you use things and therefore, this indeed is all joy. So again, measure struggle now to produce greater satisfaction later. Because the danger is that you could consider your present circumstances in some kind of, uh, again, academic and generic way that would be most unfortunate because you first didn't learn to consider something that would appear to assault and undermine your joy as a cause for all joy. So we want to work through that, produce a measure of tension to help you later. But if we can begin to appreciate the weight and challenge of this command now, we have a much better chance of not giving it a glaze over affirmation later. So let the seeming absurdity, impossibility, and frustration in this command hit you now. So with that, just listen to it. Just listen to what he says. Consider, evaluate, regard it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Just, just let that soak in. Don't rush ahead. And think about that. Consider it, evaluate, regard it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's hard. And it's not like, again, you know, you'll be a better person, more pleasant to be around because the fact is you're going to have various trials and people don't like a groping, moaning person that complains. That's true, but it's commanded of you. It's not a, you know, you should strive for this or this is something I think is why. This is commanded of you. This is how you should think. This is how you should respond. And just letting that set, without rushing ahead, you see that why this is a challenging command? I think it's a really hard one. Uh, you know, there's commands the, to, to pray. That can be hard because 
sometimes I like discipline. There's a command, commands to sing. That can be hard because some of us are terrible at it, but we'll, we'll do it anyway. But this is a challenging command, one that lacks qualification or excuses for exemption while being framed in a context, again, of various trials pressing the vitality, legitimacy, and or efficaciousness of our faith. This is an assault on our faith, and we're told to still consider all joy, and there's no qualification. It's not consider all joy except when these circumstances, because it is an assault on your faith. No, it's consider it all joy. And it's the nature of this assault on our faith and not joy that I'd like to look to next, uh, further framing the weight of the command and its surprising expectations. So first we note that the manner by which James speaks to these trials coming to us is that we encounter them. We encounter them. These are not necessarily the outcomes of poor behavior that are being confronted by corrective discipline or consequences. That may be part of our struggle. That is, there the Lord very generously, like a father, corrects and uses discipline and restorative actions. And sometimes, you know, people that are rude, sometimes they have the consequences of being a rude person. There are natural consequences, but that's not necessarily what he's speaking to here. So these are not, again, the necessarily the outcomes of poor behavior that are being confronted by corrective discipline or consequences so much as they are unforeseen circumstances and experiences, a matter that's made more plain through the terms only uh, two other usages where he says encounter. So it's only two other times that we see that term encounter in the New Testament, and I think it helps us fill this out. What's the nature of these engagements with various trials? Well, in Luke 10, verse 30, we have the first use. It's by Jesus when telling the parable, the Good Samaritan. And he, he frames and gives pertinent details for the clarity of the story to get to the point that he's driving at. But in those details, he shares of a man who was ambushed or encountered by robbers. He didn't walk up to the robbers. He didn't talk very rudely to someone and they robbed him. He wasn't making bad choices and they robbed him. He was just going through life and he was encountered, ambushed, surprised by circumstances that were beyond his control. Luke 27, or excuse me, Acts 27, the, se- the second use is by Luke when telling of one of Paul's shipwrecks. So we talked about a shipwreck this morning, and here we're familiar. I mean, what an identification to be known for. Yeah, Paul, shipwrecks, yeah, we're familiar. I don't want to be recognized in that kind of way, but the Lord used those kind of trials in Paul's life. And here we have an account of one of the shipwrecks in Acts 27, verse 41, and it was caused by striking a reef. And so we have that striking. The boat wasn't doing anything wrong. They were trying to reach the land. They were trying to avoid various circumstances. And surprise, striking, encountered, it happens. Now consider those term, uh, two applications of this term encounter. One, a man who is effectively ambushed, and the other, a ship unexpectedly striking a reef. Both of these contexts have a clear measure of unanticipated engagements. And I would argue, so do the trials James is speaking to here an unexpected engagement, an unexpected context. So what can we understand of these trials that effectively ambush us on our journeys? Well, we first can note that James describes them as various or having a a multiplicity multiplicity of expression. So it's not just you're going to experience these kind of things. That'd be helpful to know that, okay, in your Christian walk, be prepared for this. It's a whole range of experiences. He's seemingly providing a very generous and open-ended range of ways that such matters could be expressed or experienced. And ultimately, that will be an encouragement to us, but not necessarily immediately, because he would appear to be including a range of trials that speak to both our common and less common experiences, which is where a whole other measure of tension wells up for me. Because 
again, I selfishly would prefer, I would have liked it, it would have been easier for me if James had limited this command to regard the experiences of trial as joy to the really big experiences, the major, the catastrophic, the, the my life has hit pause for a moment. And if he just said, consider the major challenges to your faith as all joy, that, that would be simpler to me. And it sounds strange, but I think it just it works better. And, you know, those moments when small things don't really matter as much. Everything just kind of pushed off to the side. Uh, all of a sudden now the, you have a bigger view of life. You have a larger, more focused view on the things of the Lord. And only subject, uh, they're the only things that can really consume your attention. That to me is easier to negotiate. It's hard. It's usually quite rather miserable, but it's, it's easier to get your hands around. It's a, it's a magnificent, big struggle, but it focuses and it presses you to focus. But I'm not persuaded that this is the range that James is expressing here. It's much broader and sometimes even seemingly mundane. Perhaps we could think of it in view of the seed sown among the thorns, the seed that was assaulted by the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches very common experiences choked out the progress of the gospel in that particular scenario that was provided. I know it was illustrative scenario, but nevertheless, I think it has a transferable image for us. The, the common, again, the mundane, that maybe you can think about, uh, and maybe these are mostly guy perspectives, but I, things that I'm, I observe and maybe have experienced, but the mundane, the, the tool that breaks just when you really needed it, boy, that's frustrating. Or just when um, uh, the flat tire on the way to an important meeting or event or the meal that turned out badly just before company arrives or the, the child that gets sick or the job that fell through or the friend who acted unbecomingly and the many other various trials that may come. And I'm not saying that to be silly or just uh, anecdotal or just like water it down, but to give you a range, to give you a range of the fact that various trials are the big things, and they're also the very mundane and simple things. Trials that may or may not include even things such as overt persecution, but they will certainly vary in their expression. And we see this bear itself out here in James's letter. We know that many of his readers likely experienced an element of their present dispersion on account of persecution. That, that's very possible. I mean, you get, what, eight chapters in the book of Acts, and the church is already being dispersed on various levels, and you continue on, it gets dispersed further, and, and so on. But, and clearly, that's Probably large, largely part of their historical context. Maybe part of it also is the fact that there are Jewish believers outside of Israel. So we, we're mindful of that. And yet he acknowledges that, but he doesn't go on to really talk about it throughout the letter. But what he does talk about is matters of the rich and poor and how they engage one another, governing of the tongue, taking care of those in need, and other like matters, some of them the daily, some of them even seemingly mundane. And yet that was where his attention was. But... Are we at risk of making the simple and mundane too elevated of a matter here? Uh, potentially, yes. But we only have what James states here, namely various trials. And we know the nature of trials are those experiences that test or challenge our faith. So do these lesser and simpler expressions of life qualify? Or is it that we're so comfortable in our present circumstances that we want to make much of little because little is really all that we struggle with in our relatively affluent and comfortable culture? Well, to answer this, perhaps it will help to step back and consider the term used here, trials or temptations. Same term you can be translated either way. So we have a term whose, whose context can make a significant difference in how we understand its usage. And I think understanding that will help us appreciate the range 
of expression. So we see with other terms the, the same kind of thing. Desire and lust can actually be used interchangeably. Um, not that I would encourage you to. So, But with that being said, I recall my first Greek professor, he was reviewing some vocabulary with us and sharing a story about some students that were really ambitious, and they wrote in the board, or I think chalkboard, if anybody remembers those, on the, the chalkboard there, uh, something about uh, the class that had come before us, they, they had written in Greek, I desire Greek, and they were trying to impress him, and they thought that would be fun. And seeing this, he took the opportunity to ask, who's lusting for Greek? And so, obviously, it's expressed differently based on its context. Clearly, he was teasing his students as the intent was unique and was quite clear. But how do we decipher between trials and temptations? And how will that help us range from the mundane to the profound in terms of struggles and, and various trials? Well, again, the context. James would in no way celebrate the engagement of temptation, a matter he speaks to later in chapter 1. He doesn't say, consider all joy when you're tempted, because he later goes on to say that, don't say I was tempted by God, God tempts no one. You're tempted because of your own selfish lust. So he's clearly not celebrating temptation here. Also, trials are often viewed as external pressures to demonstrate quality and endurance, whereas temptations are viewed usually as internal struggles whether or not you will choose to do right. And that tension of, will I do right, versus the testing and the qualifying of, of uh, producing endurance. Now, again, even that may be a little overly simplistic as they clearly do overlap. External influences, internal struggles, but it, it does help us to appreciate that distinction. So mindful that broadly speaking, trials or external pressures to demonstrate quality and endurance, consider again your range of respective responses to the mundane samples I've provided. Again, that tool that just when you need it, it breaks. How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond in anger? Ah, now we've yielded it to temptation to just be in the flesh. Or is it going to be, you know, Lord, what an inconvenient experience. And even in the tiniest things, returning joy back to Christ. The flat tire on the way to an important meeting or event. Again, there's ample rooms for opportunity to demonstrate a lack of joy. The meal turned out badly just before company arrives. Uh, the child who gets sick and you might think, well, that's really selfish. Well, you know what? Sometimes I've, the rumor is people are selfish. Um, the job that fell through, the friend who acted unbecomingly, and the many other various trials that may come. Are these not even in small doses opportunities to demonstrate a couple of things? Evidence of sanctification? evidence of holiness, evidence of confidence, God, and fruit of the Spirit. I think that it, there's small opportunities to demonstrate big things. And by contrast, they may well become temptations toward, again, anger, doubt, fear, and a whole host of other responses. And so I do think even in the mundane, we can slide into various trials. And I say that not to just, again, be like, oh, well, we love those simple things, and we were mindful of the big things, but to express the range of which James is giving us his command. Again, those are simple things, but when James qualifies trials with various, then we certainly would also include the more severe as well. So from the mundane to the severe, but it was what is likely to happen, and the severe is proportionate responses to the lesser. So you think, well, I, yeah, I'm with David. I, I prefer the bigger things. But you know what happens in the bigger things? a proportionate response to what happened to the little things. So if you burst out, you know, the um, somebody spills something, somebody says something, somebody does something, and Wah! well, guess what? When the big things happen, you might not out loud, but you're Wah! inside, and the Lord knows, and you are not demonstrating all joy. You are in violation of this opening command. So more evidences 
of sanctification, more evidences of holiness and confidence in God and the fruit of the Spirit are on the macro level, but on the micro, the, the mundane, they're present as well. Or vice versa, greater temptations toward anger, greater temptations toward doubt, fear, and many other responses as well. So the, the mundane reflects the greater as well. It's just a, a range of uh, perspective, as it were, a, a, a proportionate response. So for me, the work of wrestling through this opening command was hard. I didn't like that the mundane will reveal what I would presume the greater, I thought the greater would be better, right? So I didn't like when I was wrestling through various trials because I know the nature of struggling with the mundane and what that reflects and that I need to express all joy, to consider, to evaluate, to reckon it as all joy when I encounter various trials, that that is a cognitive decision to say this is all joy. But what does that look like? Well, we'll get there. And if you're not persuaded, though, of this range, that it might include the seemingly common experiences of life, then I would provide one last example for you, food and water. The two elements that were supernaturally provided to the Exodus generation, but that was a source of testing for them, was it not? L look at how they, look at the range of responses and the severity of the Lord's dealing with them over food and water a source of testing they often failed in, thereby revealing more than the pangs of hunger and thirst, but their lack of confidence and humble submission to God. So I hope you're feeling a measure of weight here. But this was hard for me. I didn't like that it was various trials, but I do now. I've made a cognitive decision to consider it all joy because there's more to this text and because something else is being accomplished. So the range of trials that will be experienced will span from the mundane to the potentially crippling, and yet the command, again, is to consider all joy when we're ambushed by such experiences. Don't think they're always just going to be like, it's not like a semester syllabus where you're like, the final exam comes here, or the paper is due here. It's a surprise, various trials. Didn't see that coming. Maybe I would have postured myself differently. And that command has the potential range of, again, applications that may appear to extend from the challenging to the absurd because the valuation, again, is to, it's to be one of all joy. And that just doesn't make sense, not naturally speaking. Again, which is at the heart of this tension because even in a, a cursory study of the experiences of persons throughout not only history, but just let's narrow it down to those recorded throughout the, both the Old New Testament scriptures. Did they, did they walk around with smiles all the time? No. It would appear to testify that life and experiences are not always full of joy. And so now, again, that tension's reintroduced. Okay, it's hard enough in the mundane. It's probably going to be hard in the big. It certainly will be, but it's considered all joy. But that's not even the joy is not the totality of experiences, and we know that. Again, looking at people throughout the New, Old and New Testament, they, and yet they do not appear to be um, evaluated, again, as, as persons of all joy in all circumstances, in part because there's a range of experiences and reasonable responses to them. So Romans 12, verse 15, just a simple point in case. We could have drawn out not dozens, but probably hundreds of other examples, but it's a simple point in case that could be expressed within Paul's exhortations of how we engage one another. Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So right here, you have some rejoicing and some weeping, right? There's a, that's a pretty broad range of experience. Rejoicing and weeping, making it plain that however we work through the range of evaluating various trials is all joy, it's not to the exclusion of the breadth of other experiences that accompany this life and with them the opportunities to entrust ourselves to the Lord and demonstrate both his care and his sufficiency. But it does press us 
we still do have the command for all joy. And so we might ask, does James expect us to have all joy in all circumstances, or does the valuation of joy exceed the immediate and have a view to the larger impact of these various trials? So again, is it all joy right now, here, all the time, but I feel the tension, there's a range of experiences, or is it potentially all joy in larger perspective? Well, maybe a definition for joy would help us here. I think a definition for encountered helped us in terms of the ambush approach to these various trials. Let's look at joy now. So William Varner, uh, I'll probably cite him a number of times throughout the study. He was uh, uh, one of our pastors out in California, a very faithful man. And, and by pastor, he didn't just stand up and teach us. He, he brought us into his home. He cared for us. Even to this day, um, he's very, very generous in terms of accessibility for somebody that's a, a professor, oversees major programs, writes things, writes commentaries, teaches, preaches, and I can direct message him and say, I, what did you do with this text here when you helped on the translation team for the LSB, or I have a question about James, and he'll actually respond. That's gracious. And so I will lean on him occasionally because he's been a help to me, and here he stated a definition for joy. And he states, joy is a deep-seated sense of peace that comes from within and is not always seen in a happy outward disposition. Now, I can ultimately affirm this. Again, it's, uh, well, I'll just repeat it just to make sure we're clear. Joy is a deep-seated sense of peace that comes from within and is not always seen in a happy outward disposition. So, yes, I, I would affirm this, but it will take some work to fully affirm it because I think he, he's packing more into it than we can just capture in a statement. Because some of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us will see this and embrace some, maybe some stoic joy. You've maybe seen um, an image that circulated when I was at Disney with my family, and um, I was happy. It was just all on the inside, just sitting there on the... the, the I, I was able to process, like, there's a hill, we're going to go down the hill, and it's going to make my insides feel funny, and it's going to blow air on me. It's okay, I understand all this. Other people are expressing it. But that's not what James is going after. He's not going after some stoic cognitive joy, not only by its possessor, and there may not be a plain expression of this deep-seated uh, this deep uh, sense of peace. Yeah, it's there. You just don't necessarily see it. But I do have to concede the expression of joy, not just references to it, I think appears to be demonstrate an enthusiastic happiness. I don't think you see context of joy in the scriptures and it be anything less than, than joy. It's what you expect of it. It's not, yeah, they're, they're joyful. You just got to peel it back a little bit. It's in there. No, it's, it's joy. It, it really, I would argue when joy is expressed, it's not likely to be confused for other things. It's not, I think he's having a bad day, but he's joyful. No, it, it's, it's very clear. It's very demonstrative in its presence. So I think we need to press ourselves here not to, to be too quickly satisfied with the conclusion that, quote, while it may look otherwise, I am full of joy. It's just all on the inside and expressed in my soul's contentment. Because while joy maybe, or because while maybe joy does not always have to be enthusiastically expressed to be wholly sincere, I will recognize that, I think we need to be careful to carefully evaluate our submission to this incredibly challenging command. I think that we don't, in other words, don't look for an escape to be like, yeah, I'm considering it all joy. It sounds like it, doesn't it? But there is a tension there because joy is not just some emotional overflow, but there is an expression to joy. So especially when James structured the sentence in a way that he even really emphasizes all joy. It's not consider, you know, all joy. Now, what does he do? Grammatically, if you open your Greek New Testament, you're going to see all joy consider it. 
He's pressing, he's emphasizing all joy. Not only joy, but it's full expression. And this is where I think it can be helpful to see some examples of joy in the midst of various trials, because that's where the tension is. It's not hard to say all joy if you're walking into your own like party. Well, of course, all joy. They're all singing and looking at me. Maybe that's a terrible thing for some people, but that's an easy one to understand. So I want to look at some examples in the midst of various trials in addition to joy while reflecting on the larger impacts of various trials. Because while joy would appear to most certainly be the actual or anticipated response to a desirable outcome, at other times it's a disposition maintained by the faithful believer walking by the Spirit of God. But still, considering the moment of trial, a joy does appear to be uh, I think that's unique. I think seeing it in the moment, that's still unique. Consider it all joy. But I don't know that I could press it to right now, all circumstances, right all joy, 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 happy joy. No, that's not going to be the case. But So when it is there, I think that is truly unique. And there are seasons the Lord gives grace accordingly. So I'm grateful where it is clearly modeled, such as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 where the author states, for you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Now note, they did not just ultimately consider it joy, but but anticipated with joy the wrongful acts toward them, albeit with a view to a greater reward. So in this case, it was joy in the moment because of the greater reward to come rather than enduring through the moment while anticipating future joy. Again, perhaps not unlike what James appears to be stating here, commanding evaluation of joy while knowing that reward is on the horizon. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, another example that can be found, uh, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, here we can observe that in a context of much affliction, there was also joy. But the source and nature of that joy was in receiving of the redemptive truth of God's word. So the object of their joy and suffering were uniquely united. It's a different circumstance. It's a unique one. Not necessarily the common pattern of various trials. Even so, Matthew 5, 11 and 12 comes to mind here. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, while it's a blessed condition to suffer for righteousness' sake, the nature and timing of joy, that's challenging to discern. When are they considering it all joy? When are they expressing that? As is the place of such matters in the broader category of various trials. It would appear that suffering for righteousness' sake is a, I'd say, is a precise expression of suffering and one that, as we observed in Hebrews 10, may naturally produce joy even in the moment of being so intimately identified with our Lord and his own sufferings now expressed through us. So those are unique expressions of joy. But Peter also speaks to these matters. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Ah, similar language now to James here, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Now, what was interesting here is that Peter does not use the same term as James in expressing joy or rejoicing. That is, not the same verse as James, in, or not the same term in, um, as James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, but it is the same term that James used in verse 1 
Whereas you remember in his greetings, how does he express it? He, we established a number of weeks ago, it wasn't just some opening howdy when he says greetings to the Jewish dispersed believers, but a statement of rejoicing, rejoicing. So with this in view, same term as Peter here, in a like manner as James, he's giving a pastoral command to rejoice, echoing James considered all joy and sharing the sufferings of Christ. This also with a view to future rejoicing, thereby bridging that gap of enduring now with a view to future joy. It's not one or the other, it's both. And we get that, don't we? We understand that cognitively. We recognize that. And James's readers did too. He, he, he asserts and he affirms as much. And yet we have this command because it's for our good and we need to work through it. So James understood that his original recipients knew this. He, he says, knowing this, this is your experiential understanding. You, you know these things to be true. So knowing this, he plainly says as much. He affirmed that they understood that one could reasonably have a valuation of joy in the encountering of various trials because there's a reason. He didn't just stop because if he just stopped, you might be like, I'll obey. I just don't get it. It's because, and he knew that they knew the because, and now we also will introduce the because, the fruits of endurance that they provide are grounds for great joy. Various trials, even the ones that ambush and surprise us, what they are producing, what they are ultimately fostering us is, is endurance. Endurance, which itself is grounds for great joy, namely because it will ultimately participate in the rounding out, the completing, the fulfilling of our maturity. And this is the resolution to the tension. The valuation of joy amidst various trials is not some noble choice we're making so much as a natural conclusion to an understanding of the fuller picture. It's not, yep, I'm going to consider it all joy because I'm just that upstanding. It's no, I'm considering it all joy because I have a view to the larger things that this is accomplishing. It's in knowing that the testing of your faith will bring about perseverance. So this is a testing that has not the... Um, this is a testing that has not the object of evaluating one's standing in Christ, but to demonstrate and improve upon one's standing in growth. It's a testing as to refine, to strengthen, and mature. It's a testing that looks to produce perseverance, not proof. So some testing, is, are they really in the faith? No, this is not so much that, so much as a, it produces perseverance. It produces staying power to mature, not staying power to be assured. Now, there's certainly value in self-examining and in being examined, but the nature of this testing and the natural valuation of joy that it produces is because when it is faithfully walked through, it strengthens the believer's perseverance and continuing to walk through other forthcoming trials, trials that refine, trials that strengthen, and trials that put the sufficiency and glory of Christ on display as we become increasingly mature in our likeness to him. And as we know, this is the expected quality of genuine faith. By its very nature, what does faith do? It perseveres. It works. How does it work? By means of persevering work. And this perseverance both matures the believer and provides an increasing guarantee of their persevering through not only subsequent trials. It's not, well, great, I'm strengthened so that I can be strengthened for another day. It's beyond that, but strengthened not only for subsequent trials, but to the end that when their faith will be fully mature, perfected, completed, and ultimately give way to sight. Now, I will qualify here that James will provide some firm corrections as well. Uh, he does this throughout the letter, too, and even ends in a clear articulation of restorative care. But through all such seasons, genuine faith does what? It perseveres. 
The corrections are when it fails to persevere. And it will ultimately persevere and receive the grace of restoration as needed, but it's persevering ultimately to a very clear reward. But also part of that is your full maturity, which is what he's driving at here. And with this, we come to James' second command where he states, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we see that perseverance needs to be made successful, as it were, by doing the hard work of considering our encountering of various trials all joy. And also by way of remembering that perseverance is not a means unto itself. It's not that I'm persevering just so that I can persevere some more. It's not a, it's not a journey for the sake of a journey, like taking a scenic route to a long destination. So we, Dallas obviously made the trip from Phoenix to Atlanta, and we wondered what route's he going to take. Is he going to go this way and see things and experience things? Because that's the journey has its own value, or is it going to be I-10 to I-20, and then while we're here, and it was the latter because some things are out of our control. Um, and so it's not, uh, perseverance is a long scenic route, and it has its own value. Rather, the journey of perseverance is a means to an end. It's the, tw- it's the 10 to 20. It's getting us somewhere. It has a completed work in view, specifically your completion, your maturity, your lacking in nothing. Now, that's a prospect worth pursuing. And this is what the whole of this section has been driving to and why this portion of opening verses can be viewed as foundational elements for this letter as a whole, a letter framed to press us to perfection, to completion, maturity in Christ by means of our walking in the wisdom from above, a wisdom that is skillfully directing and seeing us through these various trials that come upon us. And this is also why the valuation of considering various trials as all joy because of what they are accomplishing That's how it works. It's not all joy because we all love a good trial or, well, it's all joy because, well, you know, there's always some perseverance that will come out of this. It's joy because perseverance is produced and perseverance has an effective end because of what they are accomplishing. You become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's extraordinary. And while we have worked through this subject when establishing our introduction and examining major themes, I want you to see how clearly this matter is spoken to in the New Testament while also considering James's treatment of it here. So let's, brief, uh, let's briefly walk through uh, with Paul and the author of Hebrews as they join James in developing this aim of being perfect and complete and mature. So 1 Corinthians 14, we read in 1 Corinthians 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, rather in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature, be complete. There's an expectation for progressing in maturity, even full maturity, as we see now in Ephesians chapter 6, where he writes, And he himself gave some as as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, mature, progress in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured work of each individual part causes the growth, the maturity, the progress of the body for the building of itself up in love. So the exercising of gifts within the body is a means by which we promote maturity among one another, all with the shared goal of becoming fully mature in Christ. 
Also, not unlike the exercising of the gifts within the church, uh, church body, so also Paul expressed his own service of preaching, admonishing, and teaching had the objective of seeing every believer perfect and mature in Christ. We see this in Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that to this end, that we may present every man complete, perfect, mature in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. This also was the aim of Epaphras and his ministering on behalf of the Colossians. Um, we also see this in Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete, mature, and fully assured in all the will of God. But again, even while there's an end view to being made perfect, complete, and mature, there's a present expectation of clear progress as well, namely a clear pattern of maturity, which some will be unfortunately found deficient in if they fail to apply due effort, as we see in Hebrews chapter 5. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of, God, a word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice they have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. So we plainly see a pattern of expectation and work toward maturity, toward perfection, toward completion, in the New Testament. And the Lord has generously provided a range of means to see this through, to include various trials. And while this might seem peculiar, it's truthfully a kind grace. Because you think about what else produces maturity. Well, gifting of the body and the exercise of gifting, that produces maturity. Praying and laboring for one another, that produces maturity. And the scriptures themselves and understanding and laboring in them, that produces maturity. And those things are not going to go to waste. We recognize that, that naturally by their exercising, they're not going to go to waste. Their presence accomplishes something. But trials, trials easily could go to waste but not in God's gracious economy of the believer's sanctification. He uses various trials to promote the necessary perseverance to see us through to completion, and that is a most natural reason to respond with joy, all joy. And note how magnificently he expresses this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, a whole man in Christ, a whole woman in Christ, the Net Bible expresses it as not deficient in anything, and specifically not lacking in the mature possession of the range of Christian character, not simply capitalizing on one or two elements and conceding failures in others, but a reflection of the whole or total reflection of Christ in one's natural life, lacking in nothing, not perfect and complete in the sense of sinless perfectionism or without struggle, but the whole person reflecting a maturity forged by trials, shaped by endurance, and strengthened by walking and the wisdom from above. As Douglas Moo put it, a wholeness of Christian character that lacks nothing in the penelope, oh goodness, the range of virtues that define godly character. Now, all this talk of uh, perfect and complete maybe reminding you of something that Jesus said, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
a statement that itself was a thesis-like statement element to the message which demonstrated the impossibly high standards behind the heart of God's law, plainly superseding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who appeared to be the standard bearers of righteousness among men. And I would remind you that James is known to have a clear echo to Jesus' teaching in his letter and specifically elements of the Sermon on the Mount. So perhaps he had this very statement in mind too. I, I don't know, but with a view to the empowering work though of the Spirit of God satisfying what Jesus said and those who were fellow slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, those who could progress and mature into Christ's likeness, not simply with the passing of time, but also by means of the refining work of various trials that would test and prove one's maturing faith by way of its perseverance, a perseverance that itself has a perfect and completed work, namely that of your own, uh, that of you being made perfect, complete, mature, lacking in nothing, no deficiencies, no weaknesses or failures, but a completed work that is being testified to as a more and more sure outcome with each faithful expression of endurance, endurance amidst various trials. This is how the mystery, the tension of the opening command is resolved. Because we know what is being accomplished. That's why we can consider it all joy. That's why this command is not as hard as it looked. It's impossible, but not hard. If that works. Because we know what is being accomplished. And as we've seen through our work in Jude, we know that while it is our charge to keep ourselves, Christ also will keep his own. So the outcome is sure, and therefore the joy in the trial is sure too. This is where it is difficult as well, though, because there's always the danger of wasting or losing the persevering value of various trials. So they don't have to be wasted. That's the beauty of it. But they can be wasted, and that's the potential tragedy. Because poor responses or deficient valuations will not produce the perfecting work of endurance. As D. Edmund Hebert states, maturity of character is not the result of the number of trials encountered, but, in the, but the way in which those trials are met, allowing them to achieve their divinely intended impact on us. But we expect better of you, right? We're going to, we strive after better. We're pursuing better. So don't lose sight of what we've already drawn out from both our larger view of James and other complementary passages that express the expectation and aim of maturity. It can and should come. If the Lord gives us years and sufficient trials, it can and should come. You might think, well, if the Lord gives us sufficient trials, yes, if the Lord gives us sufficient trials, it will accomplish that perfecting work. And as we conclude, I want to provide a picture of this for you, specifically through the context of marriage, because marriage is so magnificent and beautifully, uh, it, it beautifully demonstrates a clear maturing of a couple over time. Some people become harder over time, but that's not the design of marriage. Uh, you become one flesh, and the transformative progress over time is there's a sweetness to the maturity of relationship, and it becomes a, a precious example of a beauty and maturing together. But it's also a relationship that's riddled with various trials. Trials that I would not so much warn an engaged couple about, like, well, be careful, they're coming. But I just recognize that trials are going to come, and that's okay. That's okay. That's actually good. Because trials, I would exhort them, are means for greater joy, for directing ourselves to greater joy because it produces perseverance, which will produce full maturity, because it will accomplish and work in them that few other things can. So let me now close with, a, again, a precious demonstration of what we've been walking through today in terms of a, from the vantage point of marriage. So years ago, I was making a, a pastoral visit to a, a couple under my care, which is, 
can be different for um, a pastor that's at the time in my late 30s, and this is a senior couple. And how do you how do you shepherd and care for someone that they've walked well for many years? And that's part of just walking together. And this particular couple also, they, they demonstrated that, I would say, the quintessential growing graciously together kind of couple. You looked at them and like, well, they, they actually, they do love each other. And they've been at this for a long time. And they're really kind of, uh, they, they demonstrate this. It's very plain. They genuinely loved one another, enjoyed each other's company. They were pleasant just to be around. Like, oh, that's, that's how it ought to be. It's kind of the idyllic perspective that some people engage in marriage, and rightfully so. It was a clear pair that would be hard to imagine apart. And I remember sharing this with them and encouraging how, uh, just encouraging them with how encouraging it was to me and to others that we, we see this. I wanted them to be encouraged. I wanted them to recognize that, hey, we, we observe this. And then they both looked at each other and then they kind of at me just rather somber for a moment. Oh, okay, that's, I hope I didn't misspeak here. But the wife very directly but very graciously stated that her husband had not always been that way. You didn't know him before. He'd been rather unkind before, but the Lord had changed him. And that was fascinating to me because he humbly agreed. He wasn't like, oh, come on. No, he, it's like, yeah, I was not a kind man. I was not a good husband. The Lord transformed him. And they expressed they were grateful for that maturity that had taken root in their lives and in their relationship. And were they a perfect couple? I don't know that we could ever really say that, but they were no clear faults, only a commendable affection and joy. So maybe not perfect, but much more closer than most. And not because they started out that way, but somewhere on their journey, the Lord gave them sufficient trials to produce perseverance. And perseverance had its perfect work, and it was producing maturity. And that's what's being accomplished in us. And that's why when James says, consider all joy, we don't have to stumble over it, but now we read it and be like, yes, because it's accomplishing something. And I'm going to look at that second command, and I've, I've already got the momentum of the joy that the first one's produced, and let perseverance have its perfect work, absolutely, because its perfect work will produce a perfect work in us, a maturing work, and not an inevitable maturity. We will be transformed and made like Christ, but this is the means a means by which the Lord uses it, uses the gifting of the body, uses teaching the scriptures, uses prayer, uses our walk in grace and our maturing in the scriptures, but he uses various trials. And for that, we should rejoice. All right, let's give thanks to the Lord and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are good and do good. That's the clear testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119. It's among the many just nuggets of glorious truth that we would like to think about and hold on to. And that's, that's in a context in which he expressed so much, uh, so many various trials himself. And here we are, and we can also affirm that you're good and do good. You're good and do good, not in spite of various trials, but by means and through various trials. They're unsolicited blessings, their uh, graces that we, we wouldn't know to ask for and we'd, we'd be too fearful to pursue them, not even necessarily right to pursue them. But as you see fit, you do provide them. And they, they don't just demonstrate, ah, oh, they in Christ, but they, they chip away at the old man. They give opportunity to demonstrate greater strength, greater growth, greater progress. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to indeed Consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. 
not just because of the sake of the trial, not even for the sake of perseverance, but because of the perfecting work of perseverance. Trials will conform us to the image of the Son. Trials will strengthen us. Trials will demonstrate Christ's sufficiency. And so we ask, Lord, would you give us the grace to, to heed these precious pastoral commands provided for us by James? He loved your church. It wasn't just that he was getting on to them. He knew that this is what you would have for them. He wanted a, a mature, a faithful, a persevering church. So, Lord, may that be our own identity as individuals and as a corporate body. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.